Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Dr. Paul Maxwell, author of The Trauma of Doctrine, New Calvinism, Religious Abuse, and the Experience of God, just published in December 2020 by Lexington Books, Fortress Academic. This book is a tour de force and timely investigation into the psychology of faith experience and presents us with a focused study on the relationship between abuse trauma and Christian dogmatic theology. Thanks, Paul, for writing this book, and welcome to the show. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks, Paul. In the We'll start by talking about how in the preface of the book, you share how this project emerged out of your personal experience. Uh, could you share a little bit with our listeners about your life and career and, and how those experiences led you to write this study? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's always, uh, you know, telling your own story, uh, you know, get that the autobiography is like, a, it's a meta skill it's a self skill. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy. So I grew up in uh, downstate New York, you know, some people are like, Oh, you're from New York? Yeah. Oh, you're from the city? No. Oh, you're from upstate? No, there's a downstate, there's a third part. And uh, it's right in the uh, in the Hudson Valley, the Hudson River Valley, about an hour north of the city uh, uh, from a town called Hyde Park, New York. Abs- absolutely loved where I'm from. I love my hometown. I love Hyde Park, New York. I miss it so, so much. Dutchess County. Um, but but uh, I became a Christian when I was 14. And that was after going through um, a childhood that I've had to go through my own journey to learn how to describe and to label. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of um, informal ethical rules around certain kinds of labels. People have opinions about them. People use labels to describe themselves to successfully achieve some kind of self-awareness. And so when you start using labels, people have opinions about them. And so one of the first steps to really, you know, having or really successfully telling your own story is kind of removing some of those more categories first so you can get something accurate. So, so abuse was a tough word for me to accept at first because I don't like that. Uh, I didn't like that at the time. And it always feels like, um, my my thought was that I I didn't want it to seem like I was trying to get out of something. That was sort of the internal logic that prevented me from applying that term to to my early life mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, but the truth is, it was uh, it was an extremely abusive context in which I I grew up, and my mother thankfully left my father very early on um, in their marriage, and because of that, I did have a safe context. But when I was at my father's house, uh, you know, fifty percent of the time. It was uh, it was chaos. And it's also crazy. It's also difficult to apply the term abuse to something like that, especially childhood, uh, because you grow up with it. You know, Uh, it it doesn't feel like abuse. It just doesn't. Uh, And sometimes it does. And sometimes it can come to feel that way. Again, as we'll get into the psychology of certain kinds of experiences is so malleable. So to say this kind of experience is like that, you know, this is my experience. But so, so I became a Christian after that. And of course, um, you know, religion entering into that equation uh, was significantly disruptive for my life, but in a really positive way. I was connected to uh, the church and evangelical church in the area. Uh, I, I, I came to Christ at a Youth for Christ conference um, in, uh, in Saratoga Springs, New York. And... Um, and that experience of Christianity for me was extremely healing. Um, it was a context in which I could, um, uh, you know, the gospel 
was my entry point. So that's kind of where I think I've told my story in a, in a wrong way before. It wasn't the social benefits of the church that really attracted me to the church. It was Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, who was raised from the dead, um, that attracted me to the church first and foremost. It was that experience that compelled me to want to connect with other people, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, but but having been there, I had a fantastic experience, so fantastic that uh, I just wanted to study the Bible. That's all I wanted to do. And so my Bible teacher there, my pastor there suggested I go to Moody Bible Institute. You know, my pastor, he got his THM from Capital Seminary uh, and was kind of an OT guy. So I, I was able to kind of get uh, some exposure to a little bit of the academic, thoughtful side. And of course, my my Bible teacher was a Moody grad. So he had a little bit of that. So I went to Moody uh, as a music major first, actually, uh, vocal performance major, and then uh, discovered the languages and, you know, I, it was a tough choice, but when I saw what the languages could do theologically for me, the religious question was just so at the heart of who I was. And music was too, but the religious question for me had to be answered. You know, it was absolutely necessary. So biblical languages, that's what it was. And then I, of course, discovered Van Til and some other reformed theologians. Not many, you know, I didn't know who Bavinck was at that point, I don't think. But but, uh, you know, through that experience, I, I really uh, gained a love for G.K. Beale and, of course, all the work he's done in the languages. Uh, you know, so for Moody, I went to uh, a reform seminary after that. And uh, at that reform seminary, it was a fantastic educational experience intellectually as far as that goes. But I was coming to terms with a lot of difficult experiences in my life that had emanated from that abuse and that had also emanated from, you know, it's 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 one thing to look at abuse. It's another thing to look at a relationship, you know, because abuse is we think of abuse as a big thing because of how morally significant it is. But very often it's, you know, chronologically or along other axes of measurement, it's a very small thing. Um, but, but, you know, so for me, it's not even trauma is important and abuse is important because of the impact that they have because of the potency, you know, the relational, psychological, ideological density of those, of those concepts. But, but when I think about what I was going through at that time that prepared me to write this book as my dissertation at TED's where I would go after that to study with Kevin Van Hooser, you know, I, trauma was really, every time I tried to make trauma, the idea central it just didn't work somehow there wasn't enough there but traumatology itself is a very young discipline so i realized that my integrative task was even harder because not only would i have to prove myself as a theologian to the psychologists and prove myself as a conservative to the theologians but i would also have to do the work of both disciplines to get to the place where they could talk so i realized in doing that that i my project would have to be either way longer or way denser. And if it was going to be way denser, I had to apply a lot more rigorous thought to the outline, to the structure, to the argumentation, which is why the book reads a little stiff because I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm spinning a few plates in the book. Um, I'm aiming to resolve something that really came to fruition in my life at the end of my seminary experience. And my dad had recently passed away from an opioid overdose, which triggered some complications uh, in my experience of uh, the symptomatology of my childhood abuse and various other compounding stressors in my life, a major surgery, you know, yada, 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 et cetera. And then um, one Easter morning, I remember the congregation was just singing. I was in church. They were singing, a, I think they were singing Up From the Grave, right? Up From the Grave, Hero, blah, blah, blah. And boom, faith gone. 
I completely, it was like a, it was like my leg would just cracked. It was like a bone just, just popped and something felt very irre- irreversible about that moment. Um, what, what I experienced was certainly a death of faith and I didn't know how to understand it for all the theology that I read, especially all the reform theology, which is supposed to have this huge, great doctrine of assurance. And, oh, it's so wonderful how grace is so irresistible and blah, 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 blah. And then you lose it. And you're like, well, what did I just lose? And how do I know? And as a theologian, you're trying to ask all these epistemological questions and axiological questions. You're like, what just happened? (laughs) Well, I do know that there's this essential reformed cliche or trope that essentially says like, well, the, you know, f- faith that is real will persevere. So I'm like, okay, so what does that make me? You know, uh, what does that make my faith? What does the fact that my faith just died say about what it was? And so I had to figure that out. I didn't even know what questions to ask. So I called up somebody who's done a lot of work on this before. Who we'd, we'd been building a relationship, Kevin Vin, who's our Trinity. And I thought, you know, this guy's perfect to oversee this. He's perfect to do that. So producing this work was for me merely a product of producing an account of my own salvation to myself that I felt was satisfying to myself. Um, now, the problem with doing something like that is that it, it, it runs the danger of being useless to everybody but you, right? Uh, and so... And so, you know, obviously I tried to apply as much critical objectivity to the project as I could. I tried to ask the question, how can I exposit the answer to this question in a way that's categorically configured so that it's, uh, you know, it can translate into other people's lives, right? I tried to add an aspect of epistemological and social scale to the project as much as possible. Uh, And so, you know, I guess you know, you're just going to have to read it to find out kind of thing. I guess you, I guess, you know, Hey, by the way, I'd like to say congratulations. I believe you are probably the first person to read a physical copy of this book. So, uh, so thank you so much for investing the time in doing that. And uh, congratulations on being number one. Well, thank you. It's, it's quite an honor. Well, I'm excited to, to dive into the, to the real meat of this, of this argument, which it starts out with with kind of a, a prolegomena. I mean, you have to, um, in order to articulate as you do throughout the experience of a of a trauma survivor with reformed theology, the first thing that you're tasked with is defining uh, reformed theology. So, so how are you understanding it? You talk about uh, this this new Calvinism movement, and and how are those those movements um, particularly uh, manifested in the in the psychology of of an abuse survivor. Sure, that's a that's a great question. And um, if I may add, just a, a quick qualification, just for um, just for readers, is you know, so my so this work, um, which you gave a great great summary of, I appreciate. I pre, I've always wanted to have a work of mine called the Tour de Force, so I, I appreciate that. That was actually a bucket list item for me. Uh, but the uh, the essential thesis of my dissertation is that. A Christian can lose his faith. Reformed theology can make that the exacerbation of this, the consequences of that loss much greater. And, uh, and that a, uh, the consequences of that loss do not include a guarantee of the loss of soteriological benefits. In fact, I go so far as to argue that, uh, based on premise one, the assumption there being that it's already a Christian, that, uh, that loss of loss of salvation for somebody who has the deposit of the spirit, which me, which is indicated by a single moment of genuine faith can never lose their salvation. 
And I argue that on the basis of reform theology. So I just wanted to give people a context yeah. of what my kind of like hidden thesis is, because I understand why, why it wasn't even in a sense, it's not even materially relevant uh, because so much of the work is devoted to achieving that thesis, that the, the idea of trauma induced apostasy and its consequences uh, uh, it's really only present in the introduction and the conclusion. Uh, but of course, the spirit of those concepts is woven all throughout the work. So a theological account of the experience of Reformed theology by the traumatized Christian. That's the project of my book, right? Now, what is Reformed theology? You know, having studied in a Reformed context, having read Reformed theology for the past 15 years now, uh, uh, that is not a simple question. But what I try to do is I try to give as as reasonable of an explanation as possible as to my uh, definition of Reformed theology. And my definition of Reformed theology is this. It is a belief in God's meticulous providence, which is that everything that occurs in the world occurs because he ordained it. Now, of course, by what mechanism he ordains it, his decorative will versus his permissive will, uh, you know, primary causes versus secondary causes, yada, yada, yada. There's lots to say after that. But the basic uh, uh, belief in the meticulous providence of God or the extensive sovereignty of God down to every detail that occurs uh, in creation, that is one of the bedrock uh, convictions of Calvinist theology. The other sort of twin conviction to that is total depravity, the doctrine of total depravity, which is the doctrine that human beings do not have any moral power on their own to produce moral good. Now, uh, that is buttressed by a doctrine of common grace. Now, some people would argue that, uh, well, Calvinism doesn't really believe in meticulous providence because of X, Y, Z, but I go through, um, uh, I go through an extensive analysis of Calvin's understanding of free will, which is, which, uh, and, and, and I, and I search throughout Calvin's letters and his institutes to see if there can any, be anything established in terms of evidence for the belief that Calvin had a softer notion to the will or that Calvin made accommodations for something, something, anything, a grain of sand of liberty that we could say is somehow outside the scope of God's, uh, direct control. Uh, direct or indirect control, however you want to define those terms. Again, with theology, things become ambiguous very quickly. Uh, uh, but but can you give me anything here, Calvin? And the, at the end of the day, the answer is no. God controls everything, and the human will is only free uh, insofar as it wills. So when Calvin says, and he often does say, but it's misunderstood, people misquote it and they misunderstand it. When Calvin says that human beings have liberty, right, or liberam, you know, what he's saying is that what he means by that is that they 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 have a volition. So I might even read a quote here. Right. Yeah. Calvin Calvin offers a tautology essentially for he says he says in this way, then man is said to have free will, not because he has a free choice of good and evil, but because he acts voluntarily and not by compulsion. There's a that's a tautology. Man is said to have free will, not because he has free choice of good and evil but because he acts voluntarily. So man isn't free. Man doesn't have free or rather man has free will in Calvin's view, not in the sense that he's free, but in the sense that he wills, which is total word to use a Kantian phrase, word jugglery. It's, it's in my mind, that's double speak. And, and well, here's the thing. It's not double speak for Calvin. It's double speak the way we cherry pick Calvin and, 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 you know, use him to prove to like, well, Calvinists believe it, you know, the softer side of Calvinism, generous Calvinism, all that stuff. Listen, you can have softer versions of Calvinism. That's all fine. And you can, you know, <laughs> there's a constructionist aspect to language already. So certainly, you know, as far as using 
the, the word ethically, I think we have to distinguish between maximalist senses and minimalist senses. Minimalist senses, that's the method I employ, which is essentially what's the lowest common denominator here? What's our, what's our MVP? What's our minimum viable product to go to launch for the word that we use to refer, you know, or the definition that we have to refer to from theology? And on the other hand, the maximalist sense is those books that you read about resourcement theology, and we need a robust confessionalism. And those young new Calvinists, they don't understand what blah, 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 right? And so, so those are the two approaches to the terms. I go with the minimalist approach to the term because it's the most popular use of the term and language is conventional. And so if I'm writing to an audience, uh, I'm going to use the popular use of that term and I dig up evidence to substantiate why the minimalist approach is the popular, uh, you know, is the most popular approach to that term uh, throughout the chapter as well. But, you know, for example, definitions that line up almost perfectly with a belief, with a formula that is belief in MP and TD in the New York Times Magazine, New York Times, Time Magazine. People talk about reform theology outside academic theology. It's MP and TD. It's meticulous providence and total depravity. It is not conceivable that God could have any more control over the world than he has in the Calvinist view. And it's not conceivable that human beings could be any more corrupt than they already are, uh, morally speaking, in the reform view. That's my starting point. And common grace is not so much a is not so much a proof against that as it is a proof for it, because the need for the doctrine of common grace is what actually evidences the totality and the ex- extensiveness, really the exhaustiveness of total depravity. Might might even better be called exhaustive depravity. But um, yeah, so those are the two doctrines that those are the two doctrines that unite what reform theology is in the first chapter. And I try to make the case for why that definition should stick. But again, it's just a humble, it's merely a humble semantic decision. I'm going to, I'm not trying to settle intramural reform debates and all that kind of stuff. But then with that, with that term in hand, with that conception of Calvinism or reform theology, which I decide to use as synonyms, but then I go on to address this question of, you know, theodicy and reform theodicy. And really it's necessary to frame Calvinism as clearly as possible when taking on the Calvinist theodicy, because, you know, in that case, uh, uh, whatever you think Calvinism is has material relevance, you know, supreme material relevance to what exact arguments you can make. So in the case that you are, for example, John Calvin, who has a maximalist conception of MP and TD, uh, uh, there is a unique problem for you. And I, uh, I, what I do is I always wondered, why don't the reform theodicies feel like they work, right? I mean, you know, Leibniz and Piper and others, you know, I guess there's like, yeah, I'm listening, I'm nodding along and I'm like, yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. But why do I walk away from every reformed theodicy? And I'm like, I don't know, man, that's just, you know, how do you have all the control and none of the blame, right? Like in my mind, I'm just like, it still doesn't make sense to me. And at the end of the day, that is the obstacle of reformed theodicy is that it, in, it inverts our moral criteria. And what I do is I use mens rea, uh, well, uh, mens rea theory from legal theory to set up a taxonomy of culpability analysis through which I analyze the success or failure or semi-success or semi uh, or semi-failure of various different theodicies and the, the various theological presuppositions they bring to the table in order to highlight the uniqueness of reformed theology's obstacle to supplying a successful theodicy. And what I really try to do, and my purpose for this section is not to critique reform theology, it's not to say it's wrong, it's not even to say it's untrue. Uh, the purpose of this section is essentially to, is to give the abuse survivor who, who negatively internalizes the superlative doctrines of MP and TD, to give them permission to say, you know what, 
there's actually credible reasons why I find this disturbing. It may sound like I'm explaining these doctrines in a way that suggests that they're heinous or evil or wrong or bad or cause some kind of harm or need to be socially repressed. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe any of that. All I'm doing is I'm trying to say, as a, as a reformed person, I'm trying to be self-critical. Is there anything to all of this? Um, so that's what, I, that's what I set out to do, is I set out to say the traumatized Christian who is um, bothered by the reformed doctrines in such a way that God has actually become the trigger point of their trauma. Uh, you know, what we're trying to achieve uh, that is uh, through this is to essentially say, you, you, you have a ticket to admission here. And I want to go up and I want to sort of that's give right. out free VIP passes to the conversation, which is what's happening in my head. Right. right. And so that's all I want to do with part one. That's right. And so once you've established that um, that framework, we know mm-hmm. that we're ta- what we're talking about. Now, the, the next task for you, which you tackle in part two, is to map how faith interacts with the human faculties. That's right. So tell us a little bit about how you're um, how you're constructing your kind of inner anthropology and then how faith maps onto that and then we'll we'll then maybe touch on how trauma in particular disrupts the the interplay between those human faculties which is the task you set in part 2 so so here's how the self interfaces with with or here here's the economy of the self essentially my model where essentially imagine a square and each side of the square represents um one variable in the equation of the self, right? So you picture a square in your mind, super simple, four parts, right? That's all there is. Now on the top part, that's reality. Reality is the source of it all, right? You look at reality and reality gives you whatever you got, right? That's just what yeah. you got. That's the card, the cards you're dealt, so to speak, right? That's where the, that's the top side of the square is reality, which is metaphysics, right? It's, it's actually quite big. It's a whole discipline of philosophy, but, but you, so the top, you get reality on the side. Now imagine that there's an arrow going counterclockwise, right? And that indicates the direction that all these operations are moving, right? So it's a square, right? You can imagine a circle kind of turning counterclockwise, right? Which is to the left, right? If you're looking at it straight on. So if it's circles turning to the left, so if the square, imagine an arrow in the square indicating to the left, so it's going counterclockwise, and that's the direction of the mind's mental operations. So it goes from reality to the intellect. So the intellect is the first uh, faculty which interfaces with reality and it it receives all the data all the raw data right now that is observation now from there the intellect cognizes all that data it takes all your previous taxonomies whether whether it's like platonic forms coming in up through the you know through the multiverse or whether it's the aristotelian substances you know uh, maturing through your senses whatever it is you know it cognizes those data according to previously held taxonomies in order to make the data intelligent to what faculty comes next. What's the bottom of the square, right? So the top's reality, the left is the intellect, the bottom, that's the imagination. What the imagination does is it's the axiology. It adds value. It says, is it good or bad? Is it pretty or ugly? Is it worthless or is it valuable, right? It asks the value question about all of uh, about all of the data and it construes it. So in a way, reality gives a completely unzipped file to the intellect. The intellect unzips that file and then the imagination decides what all those files mean, uh, the significance. So in a way, the imagination is the hermeneutical faculty of the mind because in a way, hermeneutics is essentially just determining the value of a text uh, being intended value. And then from there, it goes to the will, 
right? Now from there, the imagination packages, repackages all of that for the will and the will acts upon the data that the intellect has cognized that the imagination has evaluated and puts it into act. Now, there are actually three kinds of imaginations or rather three functions of the single operation of the imagination. Those three functions are number one, the perceptive imagination. The perceptive imagination is essentially the imagination that looks out into the world and makes value determinations about what it sees or what it observes. Then there's the conceptive imagination. The conceptive imagination, that is where fiction actually does present itself, but it's also where, uh, but it's also where de- uh, ideas or, or objects which are not materially present to us uh, are stored, right? Uh, 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 Aristotle, uh, I forget if he called it phantasmata or fantasia, but I believe he called it fantasia in the sense that it's the place where, yeah, uh, uh, um, concepts are stores, right? So the storehouse of the mind. Uh, and then uh, that's the conceptive function of the imagination. So a lot of people think that the intellect is the storehouse, but it's not, it's the imagination. So you've got the perceptive, which helps you perceive the world by focusing on a few key you know, objects out there in the world, right? We're not actually focused on 99% of what we see. We have the conceptive, which obviously helps us to conceive of things, some fictional, some true. And then you have the inflective imagination. And the inflective imagination is actually, it's a, well, obviously inflection is a very basic concept, but the, uh, what inflection does is it sort of, um, it pulls you to something. Uh, so, so, so an inflective property of a piece of art would be the, would be the property of the art which makes you feel something or makes you have an existential experience. So to, for the imagination to operate or function rather inflectively is for it to give the will an emotion to deal with. Uh, and so when you're inflected experientially, phenomenologically into the will, those are the three ways that the imagination interfaces with the will, perceptively, con- conceptively, and uh, uh, inflectively. Now, Calvin and many other Reformed theologians, as I talk about in chapter four, has three uh, uh he has a threefold taxonomy of faith. He has faith as a census, which is assent, or rather it starts with knowledge, right? As the, at the base, it's, it's notitia, knowledge, a census is assent, fiducia is, is trust, obviously. And what I do is I correspond those three acts of faith to the three functions of the imagination. And so the perceptive cycle, obviously, because you're talking about perceptive, you're talking about straightforward knowledge, coordinates with notitia, which is knowledge. Uh, a knowledge of God. So we actually come to know God inflectively, or rather, we, or rather, we know God through our imagination, or rather, we know about him or know him intellectually through the imagination, through the perceptive imagination, which routes that knowledge to the will, and then we act upon that knowledge of him. Then there's the concept of imagination, which is a census, right? That's where we conceive our ascent. That's where we say yes. That's where we that's where we per- perceive immaterial psychological agreement uh, uh, within the within the economy of our own minds. And then there's the inflective cycle, and of course, just as trust might imply. It is an act. It is an experience. It is something more than merely understanding or conceiving. It is extrospective in that way. And you and uh, so what I do there is I try to uh, develop a multivariable and multi-operational taxonomy of the self that we can use to understand faith, but not only faith, trauma as well. And what I propose is that trauma most basically by definition is a wounding of the imagination. And I review many different hypotheses for that. The, the yeah. betrayal trauma hypothesis, uh, hypothesis by Jennifer Freyd, the sensorimeter hypothesis by Bessel van der Kroek, the mimetic hypothesis by Kathy Carruth. And they all have great things to say and valuable things to say, but at a modeling level, none of them work 
because they're all doing something else. Carew's doing continental philosophy, linguistic hermeneutics. Bessel van der Kolk's doing psychiatry, selling a million books or whatever he's doing. You know, the the betrayal uh, trauma hypothesis, a lot of those guys are psychoanalysts who are just doing their own practice anyway. So what I propose is that the imagination hypothesis actually allows us with the the not not philosophical categories though they are certainly philosophical but the theological anthropological categories and the sociological categories of Calvin and Herman Bavinck and you know Vitzius and uh, uh, all those guys uh, but but if we can if we can actually take that and fit that into a model that gives us an ability to say what trauma is all the better and I think it does so this is in a way very Bavinckian in the sense that I believe that grace restores nature and sometimes what that that means is you get this happy coincidence where the answer to a theological question also happens to be the answer to a psychological or philosophical question as well and that's kind of how I feel I came around to this model of the imagination was I actually sort of stumbled upon a theological solution to a psychological problem which is the definition of trauma or the etiology of trauma or really a model of trauma and i think that theological anthropology has to be the answer because only through faculty psychology and the imagination hypothesis do you actually have a model that can account for the multivariated symptomatology of trauma because otherwise all the uh uh you can't you can't conceive a real organic connection between trauma and all the symptomatology it produces how does that wounding manifest itself or express itself in how the imagination relates to the other faculties, i.e. the intellect, the will, or itself? So, so first of all, we have the imagination's relationship to itself, which produces the incapacitated imagination. And so as a result of that, um, when they're incapacitated, the intellect interfaces directly with the will and it's not able to cognize its impressions and perception or, or, or to recognize reality's configurations in its inflections. So the result is that the will's acting in ways that don't operate on the basis of any explicit or understood axiology, right? Imagination, uh, imagination's not doing the valuable the valuable appreciative work that it does. It's not appreciating anything. So essentially what we lose in, in the incapacitated imagination is value. What we lose when the, the imagination becomes inoperable is that the imagination fails to interface with the will. It failing to interface with the will produces a lot of volitional disorders, right? Uh, those kinds of disorders, which you would uh, maybe often, uh, you know, think about with kind of dysregulation or what the connection between trauma and addiction, that kind of thing. And then finally, you have a uh, 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 the inhibited imagination, which is the bypass intellect. And this symptomatology would produce mental fog, self-limitation, self paranoia, you know, uh, believing things without the uh, due amount of epistemological rigor, all the things we get from our intellect in terms of what it means to be like a smart human. Well, well, if it's overwhelmed by some kind of traumatic experience, then we realize that the intellect is such an acute and proximate source of pain that we just shut it off. And that's a subconscious act. Uh, and sometimes it can be a mixture of subconscious and, and conscious activity. But we shut that, we shut off the intellect. And so the trauma in response to overwhelm will shut off Either will shut off the, the imagination's relationship to itself, to the will, or to the intellect. And as a result of that, you get three different kinds of traumatic disruptions of faith. One is basically where you leave reformed theology. So let's say, let's go back to the traumatized Christian who negatively internalizes the superlative notions of, you know, MP and TD, meticulous providence and total depravity. There are three ways that they could be uh, inflected out of that. The first is to just leave reformed theology, right? Oh man, God's in control of everything and makes it, he blames everything on us. What a jerk. You know what? Oh, 
maybe this isn't biblical. And then they're an Iranian or whatever, right? Like they, they make some kind of theological switch. That's a trajectory that might be available to somebody, you know, who's disturbed by those ideas. The next one is reluctantly reformed, which is kind of what I was for a long time, which is, yeah, I'm reformed and I hate it. Uh, you know, and that's essentially where you have notitia and a census, but no fiducia. And this is something that Calvin actually talks a lot about. And I have an extensive section on Calvin's trying to define faith in these three terms and really applies a dialectical reasoning and never gives a full, exhaustive, comprehensive account of faith in all three of those terms, but rather uses them to bounce around a lot, depending on who he's talking to, which I actually really love about uh, Calvin's yeah. writings. But, but, and, and then the third thing that you can do is essentially to say, Yes, I did deserve my abuse and God is good. And it's essentially sort of the mere opposite of leaving Calvinism, which is I'm accepting Calvinism, but I'm harmfully internalizing it. But here's the thing. There is a world and there are many people like this for whom all this makes perfect sense. And I don't want to take that away from anybody. You know, I think people who find Reformed theology to be totally encouraging and like gives them a way out of their trauma and is a tool of recovery for them. Oh man, go with God, keep going, stay on the path. However, those are the yeah. sort of the three ways that traumatized individuals can internalize reformed theology according to the three modes or rather the three functions of the imagination and, uh, and the three ways in which they can be wounded, which actually creates a nine part taxonomy of traumatic symptomatology, which is the wounded imagination hypothesis. And then from there, you get the expression of these three distinct trajectories of pistic disruption or disruption of faith. So that's essentially what I achieve in part two. I think what you've done in part two is brilliant in providing this this modeling that you've now modeled the, the self. You've modeled how the imagination is operating, how faith fits onto that. And then from there, the particular disruptions of that trauma pr uh, produces on that faith, especially in the experience of Reformed theology. Now, from there, you move in part three to present a new method forward, which you're calling pistic resilience. That's right. Which integrates uh, certain aspects of the reformed dogma of perseverance of the saints mm -hmm. with psychological resilience. So tell us a little bit about the, the kind of twofold pistic resilience that you present in part three. Yeah. So here's what pistic resilience is coming, of course, from the Greek, uh, you know, pistis, which means faith. Um, pistic resilience uh, is a combination of two categories. Number one, it's uh, from psychology. Uh, so you know, you know, your 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 listeners will be familiar with uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's five stages of grief model for bereavement. You know, which she initially developed with people who were dying. Uh, so it was really more about self bereavement. And then, so so originally she had a book on death and dying, and then of course had, came out with a book on grief and grieving, where she did you know more studies with people who were actually grieving the loss of others. And the problem with the dogma of the five stages of grief is that counselors would be keeping their patients, they would be keeping their clients in grief forever because they're like, hey, man, you still haven't, you know, moved on to bargaining yet. You know, you still haven't moved on to this, still moved on to that. And it was extending the grief process. So now we have with psychologists like George Bonanno, these great resilience theorists who say that it's not so much about stages of progress and taking as long as you need to grieve. But Bonanno made a really, um, really controversial statement, which is actually that the less grief, the better. So his view was, if you can, you know, lose your whole family and show up at a baseball game the next day and cheer for the Yanks, good on you. 
And he says the idea that there's some kind of moral depravity in that is pietistic uh, and it's puritanical. And he says, there's really nothing there. You know, we police grief. We police grief because we think we understand it. Because the more we think we understand it, the more control we think over it, we have over it. But the truth is, if we let go of our fear of not having control over grief for a hot second, we'll realize that, yes, we can get catharsis and understanding and self-understanding and, and, and resolution through certain grief protocols, but they certainly don't have an order. So then what do we call grief at that point? If it's not stages, if it's not a process, what is it? Well, he calls it a trajectory. And essentially, you do whatever you have to do on a trajectory, and the shorter, the better. And he essentially, he essentially argues, and now Bonanno's theory is pretty much the predominant view in uh, sort of grief and bereavement models. Listen, it's not that the shortest path to resolution is always best. It's that the shortest path for you to resolution is always best. Uh, and so, so there, essentially, his whole view is you get nothing from grief just by giving it time. So he's a very deliverable focused uh, bereavement theorist. And what I like about that is it gives us the ability to really bake into the fabric of our doctrine some better operational utility with our concepts. Uh, the perseverance of the saints, the primary problem with how it's traditionally is conceived. So you have this distinction between perseverance and preservation, of course, right? With regard to that doctrine. Problem of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a completely in the classical conception undermines the assurance of the saints. It's like, you have total guarantee of salvation. I mean, unless you stop believing, in which case uh, it was never real to begin with. Bart does this great quote where he says, the spirit guarantees man what man cannot guarantee himself, which I think is a beautiful sentiment and also a very, I think it's beautiful because it's true. Um, and and Burkauer had the same thing where he essentially says, to place preservation under perseverance is to reduce assurance to a psychologism that we cannot guarantee ourselves. And that's why the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and, and really also the, the associated adjacent doctrine of the assurance of the saints, or the, rather the assurance of salvation, has always felt a bit tinny to me. That was the pitch in 2004, wasn't it? From John Piper, it's not up to you, it's up to God. Wasn't that the whole pitch? Isn't that why we're all here? But no. Oh yeah, at the end of the day, if you stop believing, you're going to hell. Back to me sitting in that Easter service Sunday, you know, uh, uh, losing my faith, thinking, well, dang. <laughs> you know, was it was it all? I mean, hey, is Christianity true, but my faith wasn't real, or was it real, but it wasn't enough? Like, what was it? And so, so I think I, I asked the question: Is it conceivable that the writers of Scripture never wrestled with this, or they right. did wrestle with it, and they give it such simplistic treatment that what we have today is really the best we could have given ourselves at this point? Uh, and, and I answer no. I think scripture does much better. I think Paul does much better. I think the Old Testament and various texts that I survey do much better. But what I create from these two concepts together, first of all, by shedding the husk of Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief theory and opting for really the trajectory model of, uh, uh, of resilience, and then on the other hand, uh, shedding the idea that preservation in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints can be subsumed under preservation and instead in putting perseverance under preservation. So really it's combining the concept of resilience trajectories and preservation. 
And those are essentially those those two things essentially constitute this single concept manifested simultaneously as two realities, one as passive pistic resilience, which is essentially the resilience of God that the believer experiences passively, which is God's resilience to the believer's breaking of trust on God's side, right? Not that God trusted the believer, but there was a betrayal in the sense that there was an apostasy or an abandonment or a doubt or something. And then, and then, and then on the other hand, it supplies us with this notion of active pistic resilience, which is these are strategies that the human being, the believer, the traumatized Christian employs and deploys in the context of being negatively disrupted or even having negatively internalized uh, Calvinism in such a way where God literally now has become the trigger so that when I think, when I pray, when I do theology, when I go to Bible study, when I go to church, when I even think about God, when I hear about God, man, my vagus nerve, it just goes nuts. You know, so, so. So that's what I propose is that pistic resilience is an active and passive concept derived from the trajectory resilience concept of George Bonanno and the preservation superseding uh, um, uh, perseverance uh, from GC Burkauer. I combine those and I use those as an ex exegetical lens to provide some reparative and some what hermeneuticians call paranoid or mimetic or traumatized readings of the text. And each of these passages of scripture are exposited in such a way so as to highlight some affinity or thematic filiality with the traumatized experience of reformed theology itself. You know, that's that's what I uh, supply in in part three is is that concept and uh, passages throughout scripture, which can exegetically because it's one thing to philosophically legitimize it. Right. It's one thing to look at reformed theodicy and say, oh, you guys can't solve the problem of evil. You suck. You know, it's like it's one thing to like, you know, dog on somebody for not accomplishing probably the most difficult philosophical task ever. Right. You can't dock reform theology too many points for not solving the problem of evil. Who can? Well, I guess planning it has, but, but the point is, but, but, but then after that, you know, the, 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 you know, after that, the next question we simply have to ask is what is available to us spiritually? What is available to us in the text? Here's the thing. This book is for people who are Calvinists who have negatively internalized, uh, these doctrines. So in the exegesis, I try to assume, in fact, I think I believe I, I um, well, maybe not TD so much because in principle it's uh, fairly irrelevant, but at least reform principles as much as I possibly can in the exegesis because the whole point uh -huh. isn't to tell somebody why the reform theology is hurting them and why they need to be not reformed. Again, that's, that's a trajectory of pistic disruption. I don't want somebody leaving reform theology just because they hate it. Maybe it's true. You know, or even if it is uh -huh. true and they and they don't like it, maybe they shouldn't stop believing it. Right. Again, you could you could yeah. you could manifest these these possibilities you know, ad infinitum. But but the point, of course, is just that we need to understand from the inside out how to get out of the negative internalization of reformed theology That's because right. you can have william lane craig yelling at abused calvinists all day long about how they're hurting themselves but at the end of the day if you can't step inside of reformed theology and see your way to resolution those principles will hold you by the throat if they i mean they certainly can they certainly can they are strong enough to right. do it and so so it's really just about and this leads to part four how do you right. do that how do you get the grounding? How do you get the wherewithal? How do you get your feet planted spiritually after something as crazy as this? 
And in my view, because we often talk about trauma recovery, right? Look, trauma recovery, trauma recovery, trauma recovery. What are you recovering? Not trauma. That's the thing you're recovering from. What are you recovering? Mm -hmm. It's autonomy. It's autonomy, right? So, so what you want is balance. You want a version of dignity that is in you, that is high enough to compel you to act morally towards others, but not so high that you treating others the way you actually treat yourself doesn't become unmanageable, right? Because it's one thing to inflate your sense of self-compassion out of a, you know, a notion of autonomy. It's another thing to inflate the, the, you know, your sense of dignity of others in proportion to degree, right? It becomes unmanageable. It becomes impossible. So, so that's what autonomy is. And I believe that one of the paths forward in recovering, uh, uh, the, the wounded religious imagination, recovering rather from a, a wound in the religious imagination is incorporating trauma into the liturgy. Um, and so liturgy tends to be kind of, you know, uh, a call and response recitation and citation or citation and recitation rather, but what I propose is something called the autonomous liturgy, which is actually more of a genre than it is any kind of practice or thing in itself. And what it does is yeah. it's essentially the idea of introducing a third voice into the liturgy between leader and congregation for whom the liturgy is intended, although there are certainly could be liturgies with a third voice that have nothing to do with autonomous liturgy. You know, but but the, the point of the autonomous liturgy is to is as a recovery tool. This is supposed, you know, conceived as a recovery to, uh, tool. Yeah. Then this person would have a morally significant voice, and the 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 distinct feature of this third voice is that is that it actually operates the liturgy, so that unlike liturgies which you just read straight through, every time the third voice speaks, he has two options. Maybe he writes those options himself. Maybe he writes those in coordination with a church leader or a friend or a family. This can be written to suit whoever, however. But the point is that that third version, so when the church asks or when the leader asks, do you trust God? They have the choice not of saying anything, but of saying two one of two things, which is yes or no. And then the liturgy for the congregation would have two options and they respond based on what the person said. And what this does is this is essentially a way for the traumatized person to confront his representative, who would be the leadership yeah. being in, you know, I, I'm thinking, well, I, I won't, I won't apply it, but you know, the, they're, mm -hmm. uh, they're facing leadership and they've got God's people at their back rather than in front of them, accusing them, or even in their minds being mentally in front of them, accusing them. Right. And so, so having God's yeah. people at your back responding in kind to what you say in the middle of a mm -hmm. church service publicly recognized what that does is that gives you autonomy it gives you multifocality it allows you to operate spiritually in a context it allows you to be yeah. authentic so that i know many people have felt this where they you know and and you can't you can't accommodate this fully but you know there are moments in the liturgy where you're just like man i don't know if i can say this today sometimes you do sometimes you don't but the idea of an autonomous liturgy being a sacramental act, really, maybe even in the most profound sense, in which one literally is given autonomy and very much like physical therapy, right? Because what's physical therapy? It's just going through the motions and then you increase the load and you increase, you know, uh, the muscle stimulation response to that. Same thing with spirituality. You don't even have to mean it. But the point is, you have available to you options which realistically take into account what your pistic capacities are after the wound. So, so it's yeah. almost like in church, you've got stairs, and you've got a wheelchair ramp. 
In autonomous liturgy, you can say the first thing, you can say the second thing. Either way, you're still in church and you're still seen by God and you're still being blessed with a sacrament of forgiveness yeah. and acceptance and belonging in the church. And um, anyway, I've been in experiences, I've been in situations where I've seen that done informally uh, and it's really powerful, um, but I've not seen it yeah. in a, you know, a tr- you know, the closest thing to this would be, a me- you know, actually, I guess I wasn't something like, the closest thing to this would be a, a, a membership ceremony and a church service where you do have, that's you know, right. people confessing their faith and things like that. Um, but I guess what I'm doing is I'm, I want to expand that idea out. I'm not trying to pretend that this is like original to me in any way. I guess mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm saying is you take that membership confession model and you just start doing other things with it, you know? Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love the the heuristic um, kind of labels that you give for part two, three, and four. So you call, if, if part two is traumatological anthropology, Part three is traumatological soteriology. Mm -hmm. And then you conclude in part four with traumatological ecclesiology. So I think that really wonderfully um, frames the the trajectory of your book. So after you've, in part one, you've established those, um, what it is that is particularly difficult for the person who's experienced trauma in the experience of Reformed theology now you map it on the on the person. You map it mm-hmm. in regards to the theology of salvation, and then you really conclude with this um, kind of beautiful ecclesiological um, way forward, which I thought just gives the, which I think wonderfully um, achieves your overall purpose, and that's to provide ways from within Reformed theology for someone who's struggling with Reformed theology because of. Mm-hmm of a traumatic experience to exactly. from within that tradition, find a way forward. So I love that yes. framework. And I'm, I think that what you've provided is, is a really important study that speaks into conversations that haven't been had within the reformed faith. Well, Paul, I mean, you've been, you've been Im- immensely generous with your time with us. Um, <laughs> well, you've been immensely and, generous in listening to me. So I appreciate oh, that. No, I think it's great. Um, but I, before we go, maybe just just tell us a little bit about what what is it that you're working on now? Are there any other research projects that you'd like to share with the listeners? Absolutely, I'm so excited. So so if if listening to my incoherent babbling hasn't totally scrambled your brain already, and you want to do that full time, all the time, <laughs> I um, I am so 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 excited. I finally recently raised some funding from pre orders to launch my personal online course theology website, I'm going to do everything that I essentially what this is, this is like <laughs> my attempt to build like a theological Jarvis from Iron Man. I want to offload, you know, David Allen has this great quote, the mind is for having ideas, not holding ideas. So in a way, right. this is my way. I want to open source my brain and just say, listen, you guys just take it and do whatever you want with it. And so I actually am going to have full curricula tracks through theology, philosophy, psychology, all the way from Hmm. beginner history, intermediate uh, systems and concepts, advanced methods, and all the way to focused studies that will be built on that. So if you're ever interested in saying, you know what, I want to do a quick track that's got four courses that are about two hours long, really short videos, really clean PDFs, comes with a bunch of books, you know, for every course, I'm building a whole thing. It's not really a seminary alternative or a Bible college. It's, it's nothing like that. Really what this is, is if you want the ground tools, my online hacks, my everything that I do, and I'm going to be putting a lot of digital PDFs together and worksheets to help you work through, through these course materials and everything. 
Um, but if, but if you're kind of interested in these disciplines without all like the boring stuff of a class, that's like, uh, do I really have to sit in a course for three hours for 16 weeks to understand this stuff? I don't believe you do. In fact, I, I'm an autodidact at heart. And most often I find you can really get a good understanding of things and not much time at all. So what I try to do is I try to, I try to translate that in a really digestible way. I know if people listen to this podcast, be like, you can do things in a digestible way. Interesting. But yes, I can. I promise. Uh, uh uh, and and so anyway, if you're into that, I would say go to paulmaxwell.co, check it out, click through some mm-hmm. stuff, see if you like it. Um, actually, the website's not going to be up till tomorrow, but I imagine this episode is oh, coming. Oh, by out the today. time this uh, is out, it'll be great. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Check it out if you like it. You know, maybe there will be a couple. I, I'll probably put some free courses on there, so you could just kind of you know try it out to uh, uh, see if you like mm-hmm. it. That's what I'm doing. Obviously, you can get the trauma of doctrine, but everything I'm going to be doing full time, and this is where I would recommend people go. Go to YouTube. That's where I'm going to be doing all my stuff. It's youtube.com. Okay. Slash C slash Paul Maxwell Co. All right. Paul Maxwell CO. So that's youtube.com slash C slash Paul Maxwell Co. All right. And that C stands for channel. That's just the little YouTube shortcut. But go there, subscribe, check it out. If you liked the book, uh, definitely, uh, uh, you know, uh, ch- subscribe to my YouTube channel. On the other hand, if you maybe are interested in this book, but don't feel like uh, you would want to, you know, labor through all the academic stuff, part of my membership on my site, I am going to have a digestible version of a book on trauma. That's not going to be the exact same tack as this because, you can imagine this is basically the distilled version of my idea, right? But 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 I am going to have a separate book on religious trauma for lay Christians, which is going to be much more practical Excellent. and sort of rooted in scripture. So if they are interested in that, they don't have to join. That will be published physically online and it's going to be out in March. Uh, uh, but if people who may not want to read through the whole book, that's going to be available to them as well. Along with, I should say, uh, a series of interviews that I did with a few counselors and pastors uh, who walked with me as I was writing this book and their reflections on trauma and trauma counseling as well. So that's going to be kind of a class, but it's just going to be sort of like a series of videos. Uh, it's, it's not going to be a class, but it'll just be sort of a behind the scenes thing with uh, uh, some theologians on this issue. And I'll be having uh, Kevin Van Hooser on as well. So that'll be fun. Great. That's that's excellent, Paul. Um, I'm really yeah. excited to, to see how you continue to develop these ideas. And, and I think you've got a great project there. Well, it's, it's been an honor to have you. Once again, this has been a conversation with Dr. Paul Maxwell about his new book, The Trauma of Doctrine, New Calvinism, Religious Abuse, and the Experience of God, just published by Lexington Books, Fortress Academic. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening to New Books and Christian Studies. Follow New Books Network for more author interviews and share the word with your friends. Visit newbooksnetwork.com for more information and to find links to purchase any of the books that we feature on the show. Until next time, I hope you have a great day.